Amen. So this morning, we are going to look at Psalm 1. Psalm number 1. If you have your Bible, you might want to turn there. Psalm number 1. Psalm 1. This is a psalm that I am sure many of you are familiar with. And it's probably a favorite for many of you. And I want to approach Psalm 1 this afternoon in a, in a way that challenges the believer in Christ to deal with uh, a challenge that we have in our lives, and that is to, uh, that of compromise. I want to look at it as in our walk with the Lord, trying not to compromise in our walk with the Lord. And when I refer to compromise, I'm not referring to the give and take moments that are necessary to live in peaceful harmony with one another, like in marriage. In my marriage, my wife and I usually come to a compromise on how low the air conditioner should be and where we will both be comfortable and not get a high bill at the end of the month. So I used to walk down the hallway and turn it down. She'd walk back and turn it up. But that's not what I'm talking about. That's not what I'm referring to when I talk about compromise. But I am referring to compromise in the sense of lowering the standard. A compromise with wrong in a believer's walk with the Lord. A compromise with evil. Allowing the things of the world, the things that are not of the Lord, to get a hold of us. It's that type of compromise that sucks the joy and blessings of obedience from our lives. That's what I'm referring to. That's what I want to address this morning or this afternoon. And sometimes it is so subtle that we don't even realize that it takes place. It's like uh, this huge section of a tree uh, that I cut down recently in my backyard. It was actually my neighbor's tree, and it hung over into my part of the yard, a big portion of it. And he used to let us pick the fruit from it, you know, as it hung over our yard. They didn't have no problem with that. And it used to produce beautiful fruit. And even some of my family members did not even notice that that tree had decayed throughout time. That's how subtle it happened. I did not even notice it until this big branch fell off into my yard. And then I did something about it. And it's the same when there is compromise in a believer's walk with the Lord. If we allow the erosion of compromise to take place, where there was once a stable, strong, spiritually healthy walk, there will be a slow decay And eventually there will be a fall. You will fall. Psalm 1 gives us the wonderful blessings to those who continue to seek after God and his word and find their true source in him in order to not compromise and fall. It gives us a contrast of two people who follow distinctly different ways of life and with two different outcomes. It is a psalm of commitment 
to a distinct way of life and to the word of God. Psalm 1 emphasizes God's word, his holy law. Bible commentator Warren Wiersbe put it this way. He said, the psalm presents two ways, the way of blessing and the way of judgment, which is what was the choice Israel had to make. I love this. Psalm 1 has been referred to as the worthy doorkeeper to the rest of the psalms. Psalm 1 compares and contrasts the godly and the ungodly and gives us the ultimate result of each. Let's read Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the shaft which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. We have a simple outline this morning in Psalm 1. In verses 1 to 3, we have the godly. In verses 4 and 5, we have the ungodly. And in verse 6, we have the fate of the godly and the ungodly. Verses 1 to 3, the godly. In verse 1, the psalmist begins by telling us some things that the person of godly character does not do. What the blessed person must reject. The importance of not allowing compromise. And there are three postures that are described in verse 1. And it is that of walking, that of standing, and that of sitting. And these words indicate the overall choices in life. They indicate the actions, the day-to-day lifestyle of the person with godly character. And at the same time, these three expressions relate to the specific types of ungodly person who is, who is to be avoided. One commentator said that these phrases describe the degree of departure from God and three different levels of conformity to this world. Verse 1 opens like the Sermon on the Mount. Notice, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. The word blessed there, in the Hebrew, it could be translated, Oh, how truly happy is the person. Or, Oh, the blessedness of the man. The word blessed, it's in the plural there. So it can literally be all the blessednesses or all the happinesses. And the word man is in the singular. The word man means human being, the person. So you can say all the happiness over and over again is the person. Psalm 146.5 says, happy, blessed is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord, his God. 
The word blessed speaks of a deep, it speaks of a deep-rooted joy and contentment in God. It speaks of a deep soul satisfaction, a pleasure that is found only in the Lord himself. It's not based on our circumstances. It is a joy and peace that, that happens outside of our circumstances. And this blessedness, this happiness is enjoyed by the power of the Holy Spirit through the word of God. And this blessedness, it is conditionally received. In other words, this blessedness is the result of some action on our part, as we will see in the, as we go through this passage. But throughout the Psalms, you see that a person is blessed because of different important reasons um, they are blessed because they trust in the lord psalm 212 blessed are those who put their trust in him they are blessed because they confess their sins and receive god's forgiveness psalm 32 1 and 2 blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered blessed is the man to whom the lord does not impute inequity and where there is no and whose spirit there is no deceit. A nation is blessed that worships the Lord. Psalm 33, 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. A person is blessed who find their strength in the Lord. Psalm 84, 5. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on a pilgrimage. A person is blessed who fears the Lord. Psalm 112.1, blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. A truly blessed person is one who is undefiled, who keeps God's word and who pursues him with all they got. Psalm 119.1 and 2, blessed are the undefiled in the way, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. And these blessings are the result of some action on our part. Those who pursue these qualities. And everyone, everyone deep down wants to be happy. That's a a basic desire in every human being. Is to be happy, to be fulfilled in his or her life. In our Constitution, our basic rights are the pursuit of life, liberty, and what? The pursuit of happiness. But the interesting thing is that there are many who, in their own mind, have an idea of what happiness is, so they try to pursue it through all these different kinds of avenues. Some try to find happiness in a mate. Others try to find happiness in a career or recreational activities. Many try to find happiness in places like Las Vegas. Many try to find happiness at Disneyland, the happiest place on earth. You ever notice that little babies are always crying at Disneyland? (laughs) They're not the happy. They're not happy. (laughs) But we got to get on that ride, so... Give him a churro. 
Many think they can find happiness through alcohol and drugs. Many try to find happiness through fame. And the point is that many are searching for happiness in all the wrong places. Things can never truly satisfy as only God can. Even relationships ultimately cannot be satisfied apart from God. Pursuing pleasure and self-fulfillment, self-centered goals, they won't satisfy ultimately. Only a life built on God and obedience to his word will bring true happiness. This is what Psalm 1 is declaring to us today. The powerful truth of God's word is that true happiness is found in a right relationship with God. It's a beautiful, wonderful gift to those who are rightly related to him and who walk in obedience to his word. Notice what the psalmist goes on to say. It says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. The word walk there is a word that suggests passing by or a casual movement along the way. The word counsel, who walks not in the counsel, it has the meaning of advice, planned direction, or perspective and the word ungodly it's usually translated as wicked ungodly expresses the disharmony that sin has brought into human nature which affects man's relationship in a negative way man's relationship to god in a negative way it's the opposite of the righteous that the psalm the righteousness that the psalmist will contrast in the following verses as we'll see in a little bit Ungodly speaks of a person who is guilty of wrongdoing and stands condemned before God. One Bible scholar comments that that the root meaning there, it means to loose. And it refers to those who have loosed themselves from God and have fallen into evil. Another person put it this way. um, Well, let me say this. I'll put another way. The person doesn't take God seriously. And as a result, disregards God's word and his ways. So the psalmist is basically saying, Blessed is the one who does not allow the counsel of the ungodly to impact or influence his or her behavior, his view of life, his or her view of life, their perspective. Blessed is the one who does not imitate or go through casual motions of wickedness. Blessed is the person who does not behave as the wicked say he should. Blessed is the man whose conduct does not follow the advice of evil men. Blessed is the man who does not follow the priorities of the world, who doesn't use the uh, the counsel of the world or the wicked to guide his ways. Now, you might think, well, I don't follow the counsel of the world. But we need to ask ourselves today if we are really ordering our priorities according to the scriptures. Are we really ordering our life by the priorities of the gospel? We need to ask ourselves, whose counsel are we following? Whose advice do we follow? Is it the counsel according to the terms of the world? Or is it the counsel according to the scriptures and the principles of God? 
And this is an examination that we need to make over and over again. We have to keep examining almost every day. What is influencing my actions? What and whose thoughts are are guiding my life at a given moment? And this is important, especially in the day and age we live in with the internet and social media and all the different things that we can get so-called counsel from that can come into our, our, our way. We need to ask ourselves these kind of questions. Whose counsel am I following? Is it the counsel of the ungodly? The counsel of the world? Or is it the counsel of God's word and his Holy Spirit? It's good for us to examine as we look at Psalm 1. The next standard in the middle of verse 1 is, The blessed man does not stand in the way of sinners. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. And then notice he says, Nor stands in the path of sinners. The Hebrew word for stand, it has the idea of, of coming and taking one stand. Becoming more deeply entrenched to participate in their sinful activities. The word path, the path of sinners, it comes from a word meaning a marked out path, a certain and precise way of life. And the word sinners speaks of those who miss the mark, those who go astray from the path of right. And, and, and the intensive form of the word sinners there, it shows that habitual offenders are what he's speaking about. But do you, see, do you begin to see the progression here? The decline towards more involvement in sinful living. This is not just thinking about the priorities of the world or allowing influences to come in. This is actually entering them. It's not just casually passing by. It's now stopping and taking a stand where you now linger. You linger with them. It's like when friends hang around with each other and you have lifelong friends and you know people for a long time and you hang around as a friend and you often develop the characteristics of each other and certain mannerisms and sayings that your friend says all the time. Have you ever noticed that sometimes in marriage a husband and wife even begin to start looking like each other after a while? How does that happen? It's an interesting phenomenon. I mean, when you listen to the counsel of the ungodly, you will begin to be like them. It will rub off on you. One of the saddest statements that sometimes I can we run into in counseling here uh, once in a while is when someone's gone down the wrong path in life, and uh, you sit with them, and you're sitting there, and they they say, "I never thought." This is where I would end up. How did I get so far from this commitment that I once had with the Lord? I used to feel so close to the Lord. How did I get here? I'm now standing in a place that I never wanted to be. And there is a progression here in verse 1 of believing the things of the wicked to the ordering of our lives according to that counsel. Behaving in a way that is not consistent with the gospel itself. In Proverbs 1, 10 to 15, it gives us a beautiful caution in this. 
Proverbs 1, 10 to 15 says, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait to shed blood. Let us lurk secretly for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol who, and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all kinds of precious possessions. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Cast in your lot among us. Let us have one purse and end the caution. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path. Notice how the psalmist ends verse 1. He says, Now sit nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Again, do you see that progression? First you walk, you're still moving, but now you're in the wrong direction. Then you stand, you, you slow down to linger in. And in the final end is you sit, you're at ease in the company of scoffers. There's also the progression of wickedness, if you see it. There is the ungodly, then there are the sinners, then there are the scoffers. This is not just about believing the ways of the world or even behaving like the world. This last part of this, of this progression is when you sit in the seat of the scoffer, you're actually belonging at that point. The word sit, it describes where you actually settle in. It suggests a permanent settling down and abiding. It indicates that the person is completely identified. They're at ease. They're comfortable and at home with sinful behavior. And you get an even clearer description by the word seat. The word seat means habitation, permanent residing. And this is the culmination of sin that the psalmist is, is indicating here. If we begin to walk in the counsel of the wicked, it's easier to end up in the habitation of the scornful. Psalm 1 is a warning. And it's warning us that we will be blessed many times over if we check the first signs of compromise with evil. The thing that God's people should not do if they are to expect the blessings of God is to sit in the seat of scoffers. The scornful are those who mock everything that is holy. They have no respect for God and his word. The Hebrew verb comes from the word literally uh, that means to make mouths at. The scornful through continued rejection of God's word have become hardened towards sin. And hardened toward God. The scornful, they are marked by pride. Psalm 21, 24, excuse me, Proverbs 21, 24 tells us, A proud and haughty man, scoffer is his name. He acts with arrogant pride. Scoffers hate reproof and they don't seek instruction. Proverbs 13, 1. A wise son heeds his father's instruction but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Proverbs fifteen twelve says, A scoffer does not love one who corrects him, nor will he go to the wise. They elevate themselves above God, and they order their, and, 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 they, and they rebel against his orders, against God's orders, and, and they rebellious, rebelliously disobey God's commands. Scorners have rejected God in his word. 
They seek to justify themselves by openly scoffing on those things that they rejected. The scornful think they know more than God. They're too smart to believe in the Bible. There are, the thing is, is that also is that there are a lot of, of, of scornful people who come from church backgrounds. But they have cast it off. Ah, that's, too resp- that's too repressive. You're holding us back. And that's a sad commentary on the state of many in the church. As we have seen the standard of God's word and his ways being lowered by many. They don't want God to interfere in their sinful lifestyles is the bottom line. The scornful have cast off the Bible because they don't want to. They want to be their own God. And they want to follow in their own lusts. Notice that the scorner is described here as sitting. The seat of the scornful. It refers to the assembly or place where they gather to reinforce their godless philosophies. Birds of a, fle- birds of a feather flocking together. Those who scoff at God love to get together to reinforce their prejudices. They arrogantly look down on those with a lifestyle that avoids sin and revolves around God's instruction. But the truly born-again believer who desires to be blessed will not sit in their seat. We must guard our minds. We have to guard our minds. That's where Satan begins. That's what he did with Eve. Did God said? Has God said? In other words, wrong thoughts lead to wrong behavior which leads to the rejection of God and his truth. And when I say we must guard our minds, it doesn't mean that we stop being, you know, we become non-thinkers. What I mean is that we are to evaluate everything by the unchanging standard of God's word and his truth. And also, guys, guard your friends. There's nothing wrong with being friendly with the lost. Our Lord Jesus was. He made friends with all kinds of people, but he used to, uh, but he did so to lead them to salvation. The people who you choose as close friends should be committed to the things of God and are edifying to be around. And be careful with those who like to gossip and ridicule others. It even happens in the church. Psalm 101.6 says, My eyes shall be on the faithful of the land that they may dwell with me. What fellowship has light with darkness? 2 Corinthians 6.14 Bad company will corrupt good morals. We are not only known by the company we keep, we are kept by that same company. And how truly happy is a person who does not sit in the seat of the scornful. The person with godly character is not only characterized by what he, what he or she does, but also by what he or she avoids. Not only what we do, but what we avoid. In other words, a truly happy, blessed person will make choices to avoid certain things that are detrimental to his or her life. They avoid things that hinder from becoming closer to the Lord. He or she will make decisions against those things. In verse 2, we have the positive side. That of godliness and the way it should be attained. Notice it says, but his delight 
is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Verse 1 was in the negative. Verse 2 now, it's in the positive. That's why verse 2 begins with the word but, one of my favorite words in the Bible. I love that. But you, Lord. You know that, you know, you go through those things, and but you, Lord, I love that. It's a word of contrast. Instead of a life of compromise, which leads to a downhill spiral in life, the person with godly character now occupies his or herself in God's word. And it is more than, than just occupying. Notice what the psalmist says. But his delight, he says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Delight means pleasure. Something de- desired. Something enjoyed. Something that's a joy. The word is used in the Old Testament in the Old Testament of a man delighting in a woman, like in Genesis thirty four nineteen. Have you ever noticed that when a man delights in a woman, he'll rearrange his priorities so that he has uh, plenty of time to spend with her? And he doesn't do it because he has to. He does it because he wants to. Nothing now hinders his time with the object of his delight. When I first met my wife, Gloria, I used to talk to her all night on this thing called a phone booth. (laughs) Do you guys, anybody remember what those are? Remember what those were like? They were this kind of a box-shaped thing that had a phone inside, and it was usually grimy, and there was a lot of extra gum in there. Uh, I used to talk to her all the time in one of those things. And I didn't care that I had school the next day or that somebody would drive by and shoot me. (laughs) Nothing interfered with the object of my delight. And this is, in a sense, what the psalmist is saying. The person takes pleasure. They find joy in reading and seeking to obey the law of the Lord. The person does not see it as bothersome. Or a burden or an interruption in his or her day. If all you see the word of God is to be some sort of restraint against joy and the good life. Then you can't delight in the law of the Lord. But if you see the law of God, his standards in the scriptures as a reflection of his own character. And his own care and his guidance for your life. Then If you see the word of God that way, by his word where he gives his people a right path in life, then you're going to delight in it. You're going to want to pursue it. You will take pleasure in it. It will be something desired, enjoyed, and something you pursue. Because you know that God's intention is to give his people the good and right path for truly living Psalm 119.105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The psalmist is saying that the godly person delights in God's word. The believer is genuinely and completely in love with the word of God. The word has captured the believer's full attention and he or she comes to value the word of God more and more and more and more. There's nothing like starting your day in the word of God. When it's quiet, no, no obstructions, no interruptions. 
There's nothing like breaking off in the middle of the day and allowing the word of God to minister to your heart and mind. Where you have that special communion with the Lord and his word. That is so precious. The word of God is food. Matthew 4, 4 says, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Job 23, 12 says, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. The word of God is milk. It is also milk for the new believer. For all that the new believer needs to grow spiritually and strong and healthy. 1 Peter 2, 2 and 3. As newborn babes desiring the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. The word of God is also meat for the full-grown believer to stay strong in the Lord. Hebrews 5, 13 and 14. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe, but solid food belongs to those who are of full age. The word of God is truth. John 17, 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. The word of God is a mirror and challenge us to walk right, to obey. James 1, 23 to 25. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. The born-again believer is to have a, a process of spiritual digestion in the word where, where you let it take root, deepen our soul, and as a result, letting it transform our lives. The word of God is water. It cleanses. Ephesians 5, 25 and 26. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. And Psalm 119, 9 for all the young people says, How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. The word of God is alive, you guys. It's powerful. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and as, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I love that. That's what I mean about breaking off and being with the Lord and allowing him to minister to you that way as he discerns our thoughts and the intents of our hearts and he changes us. And we ask him, Lord, what, what do you have for me? What do you want to do? How, how do I get right here? And this, you guys, is no psychologist can ever get to the core of an issue in our lives the way the word of God can like this. The word of God is a major arsenal in, in the believer's battle and spiritual warfare. Ephesians six seventeen and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It is a sword. The word of God is not just a book of fables. For the born again believer, it is the very truth of the word of God. It's the very truth of God. For the born again believer, it is the God breathed, infallible, inerrant, and absolutely perfect word. And the born-again believer, we are to delight in it. We are to love it. 
find in it all that we need to grow and live victorious for Jesus. Psalm 37, 31 says, The law of his God is in his heart, and none of his steps shall slide. Psalm 119, 11 says, Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. The born-again believer truly delights in the word of God. He or she knows that in its in God's, the pages of his word, it expresses the complete revelation of God to men. And not only does the born-again believer love the Bible, but he or she lives it out daily. It is to be internalized in us, and it is to be the only standard for our faith in our life. All of our thoughts, all of our moves, and all of our decisions are to be made against the environment of God's word and what it has to say on all the different issues that we encounter daily. It has to be consumed. It has to be made a, a vital part of who we are. Second Timothy 2.15 exhorts us to be diligent, to present yourselves approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Notice in the second half of verse 2, Uh, We are responsible not only to delight in God's word, but he tells us that we are to meditate on it continually. He says, and in his law, he meditates day and night. To meditate, it means to think about what the word says and how it applies to our life. It has to become part of you. And he says we are to be meditating on it day and night, continually. And that implies knowing the word of God well enough so that it surfaces in our minds. It comes forth like in times of need throughout the day, knowing it that well so that those scriptures come up. We are to meditate on God himself. Psalm 63, 6 says, when I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you on the night watches. We are to meditate on all that he has done in creation and history. Psalm 77, 12, I will also meditate on all your work and talk of your deeds. Guys, whatever shapes our thinking will also shape our life. And if we are going to reject the counsel of the ungodly that bombards us from every which way, we have got to meditate on the word continually. Joshua 1, 8 commands us, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, But you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Chew on it. Chew on the word of God. Have it in your minds and apply it to our lives. That's our responsibility. We have that responsibility to delight and to meditate on the word of God. A couple questions, a few questions to ask ourselves today. Does the Bible fill your thoughts? Do scriptures come to the forefront of your mind in times of temptation? In times of fear? In times of anxiety? In times of anger? Do you find yourself devoted to its contents? Do you love it as you should? Do you make time to spend in the word because you delight in it? Or has it become a duty? Because it's easy to fall into that duty mentality when when it comes to the word of God where we 
you know, we, we get to that point where I have to read my chapter a day because it takes the devil away. <laughs> but many times we also read it just to alleviate our guilt because we have to read it. So, you know, we grind through our chapter and check it off our list, but we don't even realize what we just read. You didn't have that real communion with the living God and apply his word to where you need to change. And we need to realize, you guys, that the Bible is God's love letter to us. When we read it and truly take it in, we are, we are experiencing the counsel of a loving, all-wise, heavenly Father as to how we should live. His commandments are for our blessing and good, and they're not to hinder our life. God's word counters the corruption of ungodly thinking and ungodly behavior. And the extent that we build our life on God's word will be the extent that we will have true happiness. In verse 3, we have the end result, the benefit of delighting and meditating on God's word. Look at verse 3. It says, He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season. The person who does not walk in the counsel of the godly, who does not stand in the path of sinners or sits in the seat of the scornful, the born-again believer who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it continually, he says he will be like a tree. The psalmist uses a comparison of a tree. And notice that he declares that the person will be planted. He will be like a tree planted, which means he will be rooted, he will be solid, he will be stable, he will be strong. The person of godly care is now, when he's planted, he's drawing nourishment, strength, and supply from the greatest source, God himself. The person is like a tree intentionally planted in a spot by the river where it's going to receive plenty of water for its growth and where it will have every advantage to become fruitful. Planted indicates that the blessed person is firmly stable and there is growth. Ephesians three sixteen and 17 says that, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Colossians 2, 6 and 7 says, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established solid in the faith. We are to be like the trees planted by the water where our Lord is our living water. And it is not only our supply that we are drawing from, it is His, the work of His hands. We are to be planted recognizing how great is our need of Him and and we draw from Him and we realize that there is only provision in Him. When this is taking place, there will be a growing vital walk with the Lord. You and I can grow as much as we want to. That's the key, though. It's up to us. It's up to us. I had this one little tree that I tried to grow that somebody gave me with these beautiful red leaves, and I planted it, and this thing would not grow. It was a little Charlie Brown tree. It just wouldn't grow, and, you know, my neighbors probably made fun of me because they saw this dinky little thing. And finally, I had to cut it off. I had to take it out of there because it was a long time and it didn't grow. 
But that's not the way it has to be with us. We can grow as much as we want to. We can be planted in the Lord and grow like crazy with him. It doesn't end. The Bible, we can read it every year and come back again. And it just ministers a different thing to our hearts and our minds and changes us constantly. Notice the psalmist goes on to say in the middle of verse 3, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. And then he says, that brings forth fruit in its season. It indicates that the person is fruitful. If a person is planted in the Lord and there is a deep root system, production is going to follow. Fruitfulness is the outcome of being surrendered and guided by the Lord. And notice what the psalmist says there. He says, it brings forth fruit in its season. It comes in a time when it should come. At the right time, it will be displayed. The person who delights in the word of God, who is not living a life of compromise, will see the effective output that God has given him to do. That fruit will come forth. You will see the power of God in your life to accomplishment. And you will also see the opportunities for doing those things that God calls us to do. Fruit in our lives. But the result is that God gets all the glory for that. He gets the glory for the fruitfulness in our lives. The psalmist goes on to say that the person is unwithered whose leaf also shall not wither. This is a continual evidence of life and vitality. And even when there are days of temptation and difficulties and you're going through the heat of trials, the soul will be undisturbed. And as one person put it, he will be be one that cannot be eroded by the winds of wickedness and unrighteousness. The psalmist declares the person is prosperous. Look at the end of verse 3. And whatever he does shall prosper. Now this is one of those passages that many times and throughout the ages have been taken, have been misunderstood. It's been taken out of context. And this, this promise of prosperity is not promising wealth in exchange for good behavior. That's not what it's saying. It's not promising prosperity in terms of fame or easy times and for those who are righteous and godly. I mean, that's not what it's saying. Even our Lord did not have that. But what the psalmist declares that is that the person will prosper. And I believe he means that the person will become more godly. And not more worldly. The person will have a heart in life that follows after the Lord to the greatest blessings that are not material, but they are spiritual. When there is an uncompromising walk, when we delight ourselves in the word, we will grow into a stable, strong, spiritual tree. There will be maturity. And we also need to realize that there's no shortcuts to maturity, to spiritual growth. Just like a tree takes time to grow. It only happens on a daily basis as we abide in the Lord, we draw from the Lord, and we depend on the Lord for our spiritual nourishment and development. In verses 4 and 5, we have the contrast of the ungodly. Look at verse 4. The ungodly are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. The ungodly is contrasted from the, the three previous verses that describe the godly. The person who does not live a life of compromise, the person who, who 
pursues godly character were, were compared to a healthy tree. But the ungodly, notice here, are compared to chaff. Chaff is, is, is the outer part of the grain, the outer part of the grain seed that separates at the time of threshing. It is a husk-like that falls and blows away during harvest time, during that winnowing process. The psalmist says that the wind drives it away. Drives it away means that it is driven apart. It is scattered. It is dispersed. Chaff is unstable. It doesn't abide anywhere firmly. The slightest wind just sends it where it will. Chaff is completely worthless. It is separated from the grain because it has no nourishing value. See the contrast from this to ver- from verse 3 to this? You have the godly like a sturdy tree, the ungodly like shaft. The ungodly and the wicked are just blown away. Job 21, 17 and 18 says, How often is the lamp of the wicked put out? How often does their destruction come upon them? The sorrows God distributes in his anger. They are like straws before the wind and like shaft that a storm carries away. This is taking eternity into account. And it's basically saying those who leave God out of their lives live like shaft. They, are, they have no substance. They may be great before men, but before God they will be blown away in the final judgment. Look at the warning in verse 5. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. That word therefore, it's connecting now verse 5 to verse 4. Therefore, he's saying, on account of a life apart from God, the inner, their inner worthlessness, the ungodly will not stand in the judgment. The person who has not come by faith to the Lord, who has not repented of their sins and trusted him alone for eternal life, has no part in the assembly of the, of the believers. The ungodly will not stand in the judgment, which means that they will not have no leg to stand on. Their case won't hold up in God's court. They won't be in heaven. They won't be in heaven where they're, those who have been made righteous through faith in Jesus Christ will be gathered. Matthew 3.12, it gives us an incredible sobering description. Matthew 3.12 says, His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the shaft with unquenchable fire. In verse 6, we have the fate of the godly and the ungodly. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Verse 6 gives us an explanation for the different destinies of the righteous and the ungodly. Verses 1 to 5 describe some of the critical differences between the godly, the righteous, and the ungodly. Verse 6, now it explains the, why the fate of those two are different. The word knows, for the Lord knows, it's not just speaking of a mental awareness or just a, a, a simple realization or recognition, but the Hebrew word means to know intimately, to know personally, to know relationally. Jesus said in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And people are either blessed or condemned on the basis of only one decision, you guys. The way we have chosen to walk. 
There are only two ways to choose, and every person is either on one or the other. The judgment some will receive is the result of their decision to walk the way of the wicked, and the blessings others will receive are the result of their decision to walk in the way of righteousness. And we need to ask ourselves, what is the destination we are walking today? Do you even have a born-again relationship with the Lord? We need to ask ourselves, what, what road am I traveling today? Have I entered through the narrow gate that leads to the path of godliness? Or am I traveling that broad, big road that leads to destruction? Is there clear evidence of a transformed life? Are you living a separated life that is distinct from the beliefs and behavior of the world? The ungodly. Is your delight in the law of the Lord? The answer to these questions will reveal what path you're traveling. And this is a good day, you guys, to ask these questions or good diagnostic questions that each of us must ask ourselves today. And I pray that we would not live a life of compromise. Because if we allow the erosion of compromise to take place, where there was once a stable, strong, healthy walk, there will be a slow decay and eventually there will be a fall. God has revealed himself, his wonderful plan of salvation and his will for every one of us in his awesome holy word. We must delight in his word to stay strong. We must meditate on his word so we can understand the ways of God for our lives and, and worship him in truth. We can only experience an intimate relationship with him if we love him and obey his life-changing instructions. Jesus said in John 14, 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved of my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. I pray that we would be like trees planted by the streams of water who dig our roots deep and draw from what Christ supplies as he gave himself for you and me. And, and, and just, I mean, I'm always, this church is, there's so much of the word of God here through path, the ministry of Pastor Xavier, and we're blessed. But I'm always concerned that are you spending that time alone apart from church, not depending on the church to feed you, but growing and seeking him and studying and, and, and pursuing the Lord like that. I hope we do that. May there be true blessing beyond our understanding. That is not according to the ways of the world, but according to the ways of God, which is available to us today. Deuteronomy 30, 19 and 20 says, I call heaven and earth as witness to today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. We have a responsibility also to, to leave a legacy to our families. Do they see you in the word? Do they know the priority is in the word? This weekend we were having a meal. I think it was dessert. And my grandchild, my grandson, two and a half years old, all of a sudden he broke into prayer. And he's going, Grandpa, Uncle. And oh my gosh. You know, I'm ready to start crying. I mean, thank you, Lord. I mean, glory to him. But that's what he wants to do in our families, you guys. 
Colossians 1.10, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your incredible mercy and grace and ways with us, Lord, for the access that we have, Lord, as the veil has been rent and we can pursue you, Lord, and and, and grow in you and, and have you transform us and change us. And Lord, help us to cling to you, Lord, in these days, Father, these last days of, of madness in our society. That, Father, we would be planted strong in you, Lord, and that our families would reap that too, Lord. Father, and I pray for anyone here today or or listening over the internet, Lord, that maybe has walked away from you or has not given their life to you at all, Lord, that today would be the day of salvation. The day would, today would be the day to come back to their first love. And as we're just praying right now and ending our afternoon here, if there's anyone who fits that, who has walked away from the Lord or has never given their life to the Lord, we want to pray with you. You're not here by coincidence. The Lord brought you here today to get right with him. And if that is you, we want to pray with you. And we just ask that you would raise your hand. We just want to acknowledge you so that we can pray with you. If there's anyone here who fits that, just raise up your hand and slip it down. And we want to pray with you and we want to acknowledge you. The Lord's leading you. I see that hand in the back over there in the center. Is there anyone else? Is there anyone else? I see that hand in the balcony. God bless you. Father, you know the hearts of the people here, Lord. And Father, you're so good. And I just want to ask them, if you lifted, those of you who lifted your hand, those of you who want to accept him, pray this prayer. Repeat after me. Father, I come to you now. In Jesus' name. Forgive me of all my sins. Transform me. I want to walk with you from this day forward. Give me a brand new heart. I accept you. I give my life to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.